like for the rest of you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 4. I want to talk to you this morning about Abraham. And you know, Abraham pops up right in the middle of this early discussion that Paul is having in Romans about being justified by faith. And it's kind of a strange place to put Abraham because he's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. He's talking about his shed blood on Calvary. He's talking about forgiveness and, and cleansing and being literally made judicially sinless on the basis of faith and faith alone. And you say, what does Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before Christ and nearly 500 years before Moses, and what does he have to do with faith and, and, and justification and being made righteous on the basis of God's grace? But as we look at the life of Abraham, it's truly remarkable how this man is actually the father of all the faithful, not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. And Paul is especially concerned about pointing this out, because remember, you and I read the book of Romans. Does anyone here have a, have a background, a Jewish background in this service? Anyone come from a Jewish family? Okay, so you can see... We do have someone in the 8 o'clock service, but uh, you can see how this, um, to us, we read the book of Romans, and we say, oh, it's all about Jesus. It's all about faith. It's all about walking with Christ. But remember, Paul's audience included a significant proportion of Jewish people who had from birth been taught, the law is it, Moses is the guy, you know, following the, the, the ceremonies and following the ritual and celebrating uh, the festivals. This is what faith is all about. And, you know, Paul comes along and says, this is not necessary for salvation. In fact, it often gets in the way of salvation. And they're saying, like, what? You know? What about this? And he says, well, before Moses there was Abraham. And you look back to Abraham as your father, the founder of the, of the nation of Israel. You count him as the, the one who started it all. And he says, I want you to know, Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. And it didn't have anything to do with circumcision, didn't have anything to do with the law, it had to do with Abraham's trust in God. So follow with me in Romans chapter 4, uh, beginning of verse 1. We're going to read a little bit, and then we'll talk about this man. Just some uh, emphases from his life. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And this is Genesis fifteen six, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what's due him. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, 
His faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And now Paul quotes the Psalms. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. Now, I want to remind you of this, of this guy, you know. We don't know a whole lot about what Abraham, or Abram as he was called then, was like before that grand introduction at the end of Genesis chapter 11 when God appears to him and says, Abraham, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham lived approximately, it's kind of hard to sort this out uh, because um, you know, the genealogy is not exactly precise. I'm not saying the Bible's not precise, but there are just gaps in there. But uh, Abraham lived approximately 2,000 years after Adam in the Garden of Eden. And, and Adam and Eve, as you know, sinned and, and plunged the whole race into this sinful mess and Things got so bad that God just couldn't even stomach it anymore and, and uh, saved Noah through the flood, but, you know, he just destroyed the human race, basically, and started over with Noah. It wasn't too long before Noah and his offspring were in trouble, and eventually we come to the Tower of Babel where the whole uh, world speaks the same language. Once upon a time, that was really true. Everybody spoke the same language, and they all could communicate. And God says, if I let this go on very much longer, we're going to be in real trouble, because they're, they're going to get right back to the days before Noah, and if they can all pool their resources, so I'm just going to divide them and separate them out and send them to the far reaches of the planet using language as the divider. And at the Tower of Babel, they showed up for work one day and they couldn't talk to each other. And uh, all of a sudden they got together in fam families and clans and separated out. And, and yet the, the world still continued to go on in chaos. And yet it was not a world without religion. Because the promises that God made to Adam and Eve had been passed on. Abel clearly understood them, probably Seth did. Enoch walked with God and he understood them, and there's no question that by word of mouth, the knowledge of the truth, at least as much as they had, was handed down. Noah had a relationship with God, and he had some understanding of what the, God's requirements were. And in that oral tradition, there was a promise that God had made to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he said to the woman, your seed will be bruised on the heel by Satan, but he will crush the head of Satan, your enemy. 
And in that prophecy was the foreshadowing that one day a child would be born that would save the human race. Now, they may not have understood all the details, but they had the concept down. Eve was so confident in her understanding of that that she thought her first child was going to be that Savior. But the little did she know there was a lot to go on in between. It's no doubt that Abraham probably had some of that background, some of that understanding. But, but whether he had an intimate relationship with God at that point in time, we have no, no idea. But we do know that in Genesis chapter 11, one day when Abraham was just kind of minding his own business, he was uh, doing his work, he was living in a fairly large metropolitan city. He undoubtedly, he had become a wealthy man. He was not, you know, the humble shepherd out on the hillside somewhere. He was respected and, and, and well-to-do. God came to him and God said to him, Abraham, or Abram, I want you to get up from the land of your fathers. I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees. I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And this guy embarked on an adventure because he trusted God. It's kind of a, a neat story because Abraham was not a young man. And I know we kind of go back and say, well, but they lived a long time in those days. Well, yes, they did. But still, <clears throat> when you're in your 70s, even then, you know, being in your 70s was, uh, was getting older. And we, we know from the scriptural uh, story, we know from scripture that, you know, so I think some people kind of tend to think, well, did they treat the years differently or what? No, they treated the years the same. And a woman ended her childbearing years at approximately the same age they do now. And so Abram and Sarai leave Ur of the Chaldees, and he's early 70s, she's early 60s, and off they go. And they begin to follow God. They go to this land that he shows them. They're on an adventure to see where God is going to take them. Isn't it amazing that a man that age and his wife would uh, trust God enough to uproot their family sell off all their stuff, sell their house if they had one, pack everything up, you know, load it on the camels, and head out into the desert. Just head into the wilderness. Believing that God was going to fulfill his word. Well, back in, if you turn back to Genesis with me for just a moment, let's uh, look about Genesis chapter 15. Put your finger there, and I'll kind of bring you up to speed. Because after they leave, you remember Abraham's nephew Lot went with them, and pretty soon they got to fussing about land and who could graze where. And so pretty soon Abraham and Lot separated out. And then there was this war of the kings that went on that Abraham had to go rescue everybody. And uh, then after that, um, after Abraham comes back from that war of the kings, now he's been walking with God for a while. And we come to Genesis chapter 15, and God comes to Abraham again and talks to him. I should be saying Abram, so you get this kind of locked in, in your mind, because he's not Abraham yet. It happens in this chapter. In, a, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, will, what wilt thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? 
And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Now listen to what Abram is saying. By the way, in those days, people got names that were kind of prophetic and insightful about their character. Today, we give names that we like. (laughs) But in those days, parents would name their children based on kind of a prophetic anticipation of of their nature. And if they got to be a little older and the name didn't fit, they would change it. You know, oh, here's what you really are. That's, <laughs> that's why Jacob's name got changed, you know, thankfully. But Abraham meant great father. So can you imagine Abraham, you know, meeting somebody new, sticking out his hand and saying, Hi, my name is great father. And they say, Wow, how many children do you have? Well, none. How can you be great father with no kids? Abram is really in the Semitic Middle Eastern way. Abram is actually complaining to God here. (laughs) He's actually kind of entering into a barter situation. He says, God, what will you give me? You know, it's kind of like saying, what do you want for Christmas? And, And you say... Oh, I don't know anything. Um, you know, the, that Rolex watch I've been looking at is kind of nice, but nah, don't worry about that for Christmas. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it, it's the hint. It's that subtle communication that says, God, what will you give me since I don't have any kids? Hint, hint. And Eliezer is my heir, and. He's not even born of me. He's a servant in my household. But legally, that's what would happen. If a man had no children, it would like go to the senior servant or senior steward of his household or whatever. And Abram says, that's what's going to happen. And so in verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir but one who shall come forth from your own body, he will be your heir. And God took him outside. Now, he must have been in the tent. But now Abraham gets up, and it's night, and they go outside. And God took him outside and said to him, Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And you can just kind of see this. So, so you know, Abraham goes up, and he... Wow, that's a lot of stars. And while Abram is kind of looking into the heavens and seeing the vast expanse, let me tell you what, there, there weren't any lights, street lights and whatever to mess that up. I mean, the stars really look like there's billions of them when you're in a, in a place, or you know, a country place. And Abram's looking at these stars, and God says to him, So shall your descendants be. One from your own body is going to be given to you, and this is what your descendants will be like. Abraham is about 80 now, 82 or 3, and his wife is in her 70s. And Abraham says, God... I believe. I believe you. 
And it's in this passage that he says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees and to this land to possess it. And Abram said, O Lord God, that I may know that I shall possess it. And he said, Bring me a three-year-old heifer. In other words, God is making commitments to Abraham here. The commitments are, you're going to be that father. You're going to have a son. You're going to be a father that's like the stars of the heavens in your offspring. It's going to be amazing. And I'm going to give you the land that I've promised to you. And I'm going to make you that great nation. And that was very special to Abram because God had said to him back in Genesis 12 when he called him, he says, I will make a great nation out of you. I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now I say that because Abram really was not putting his faith just in God's promise to be a father. But he was actually putting his faith in the fact that he was going to be the father of the coming promised child. The special one. Abram understood that. In Galatians, or in Galatians chapter 3, if you want to turn back there, we're, uh, we'll go back and forth a little bit. Keep a finger in Genesis just in case. But in Galatians chapter 3, it says, now the promises were spoken to Abram. This is verse 16 of, Gen- of Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed that is Christ. This is pretty cool, because in English we say seed for singular and plural. But Paul made a distinction in the Greek, and it's helped us here in the translation. Not seeds, but seed. To your seed, referring uh, not to many, but to Christ. And what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Abram was actually putting his confidence in God to be that father, to be that patriarch of a huge race, but also to be the one through whom the world would be blessed. And in doing so, in Genesis 3, verse 6, it says, So he believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, I want you to note that this verse occurs, and this experience occurs, before Abram is circumcised. And Paul is making the point very clear to to his Jewish audience. Not only was this given nearly 500 years before the law, But this was given even before circumcision. Abram had not done anything that we consider important when God said to him, I will reckon you to be righteous on the basis of faith. Friends, that's really important for us to understand. 
we have been emphasizing the fact that justification is what God does for us on the basis of faith without our works. And here is the proof that Paul gives us in this man, Abram, who believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. But you may be asking, how is it that God could justify these guys in the Old Testament? Because Jesus had not died on the cross. And aren't we talking about the atonement on the cross? How could this happen? Some people were under the erroneous assumption that people in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the law. They were saved by making sacrifices. They were saved by performing the rituals and, and all these things. But I want you to know that the Bible doesn't teach that. Those outward signs were merely the external acts that, that demonstrated a faith in one's heart that God will accept me because I believe him. Now, just like today, there's people sitting in this room that don't get it all. I know that. There were Jews that didn't get it all. But God, by his grace, praise the Lord, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to go to heaven. You just have to know you're a sinner and you need a Savior, and you come to God and you cast yourself on him by faith. I'm grateful for that. And, and not everyone understood what they were doing, but they were doing it looking to God. But the truth of the matter is, the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Okay, So you, those lambs they sacrificed, the Passover lamb, the bulls they sacrificed, they could not actually cleanse somebody. They were all pointing to Jesus. They were all prefiguring the cross. And so... In all the Old Testament, whenever people believed through the sacrifices, Abel in offering the lamb from his time on down, when they obeyed God and offered the sacrifices and performed the ritual, it was all looking to Jesus. The whole Old Testament liturgy of the Jews, in one way or another, prefigured Jesus Christ and and, and showed us a picture of him. And when Jesus died on the cross, there's this very bizarre verse in Matthew. I've, I've told you this before, but a lot of these things I, I'm going to repeat this morning because I know how the devil works. He snatches these things right out of our mind. But there's an interesting verse in Matthew chapter 27. The first time I read that, I think I was in high school, and I thought, what in the world is this talking about? Nobody had ever preached a sermon on it. But in Matthew 27, long about verse 51, says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened. <clears throat> and here's the weird part. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many like whoa here's these old testament saints coming out of the grave can you imagine going to the door and opening the door and here's here's elijah here's samuel here's jeremiah i just thought i'd stop by and say hi whoa and somehow they knew who they were you know, I don't know if they had a name tag or what, but somehow they connected. I, obviously, it happened in the spirit. I'm being facetious. 
but they knew who they were. What was that all about? Remember Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus? He told that story before he went to the cross, okay? And in that story, uh, down in the, the abode of departed spirits, what the Old Testament calls Sheol, there was Abram's bosom, his heart, next to him, his family. And then there was Hades, not a good place. And the rich man and Lazarus both died, and the rich man had just been an arrogant, self-serving guy all of his life, and Lazarus had been a faithful, believing person in God. And the rich man looks across from his torment in Hades, and he sees Lazarus over there in the bosom of Abraham, and he says, Oh, if Lazarus could only go and tell my family, you don't want to come here. Get right with God. And um, he's told, you know what? If somebody raised from the dead, they wouldn't believe. It wouldn't do any good. He says, well, then if you could just let him dip his finger in that cool water and touch my lips because it's, it's so hot, I'm burning in the flames. And that's prohibited also. What image comes to your mind when you see that? I see this place where there's this great chasm, this great separation. And on one side, there's this flaming fire, and, and all the souls without God in their lives are in the fire. They're in, in Hades, waiting for final judgment. But across this big gap, here's this beautiful meadow, green trees, and flowing stream, and this gorgeous place, and here's all the people that have been faithful and trusted God throughout the Old Testament. You know, and, and, they're, and they're there just enjoying each other. But why are they there? Why are they not with God? Ah, because their sins have not, in fact, been removed. The blood of bulls and goats could not wash their sins. But God has accepted their faith as a deposit against the time when Jesus would die. And in a joyful, wonderful place, they're waiting for the real sacrifice, the Passover Lamb of God, that will truly cleanse their sin. And when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, the debt is paid. The, the sins are cleansed. The scripture says Jesus went down and announced liberty to the captives and led captivity captive and ushered them into the presence of the Father. And this passage in Matthew says they made a side trip on the way. They stopped off in Jerusalem and knocked on a few doors as they were moving into the presence of the Father because now... They were judicially cleansed from sin. Abram, when he believed God, was pointing to the time when Jesus would come from his loins and be the sacrifice of God and die on the cross. And the scripture says, by Abraham's deep heart faith, God said, I will reckon you as righteous. Not on the basis of what you've done, 
but on the fact that you have believed me when I said I'm going to send a son through a nation that will come from your body and he will die for your sins, Abram was putting his faith in Jesus. And God credited it to him. Now it's very interesting what happened after that. And this is so cool. I, I hope you get this. Latch on. You know, I, I have. Uh, I, I went back and forth a lot of times theologically when I was in school. I grew up a Southern Baptist. Okay, you can't be a Baptist and not not uh, believe in eternal security. Once saved, always saved. That's what I was taught from my childhood. So I grew up a Southern Baptist, and I just believe once saved, always saved. But I happened to see around me a lot of people who believed, and oh man, their lives did not look like Christians. I mean, they did for about an hour in church, but as soon as they got out of church, they went back to being who they were, and it was not a pretty sight. You know, and they would always say, well, that's all right, I'm just, you know. So I struggled with this whole thing of the doctrine of eternal security for a while. And when I was in college, I kind of flipped over to the Arminian camp, and and I got to, to be a real Wesleyan and a real Arminian in my thinking, and you know, and, and then I started preaching through Romans. And it was preaching through Romans that brought me back to understanding the covenant-keeping power of God. And I want to say something to you this morning. Although I believe the Bible teaches for those who are truly saved, the Bible does not teach you can make a mental ascent and go to heaven and just live like hell and it doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't teach that. But the Bible teaches for those who make a commitment a true commitment of their heart to faith in Jesus Christ. God keeps the covenant. God keeps the covenant. And I am safe in him. I know and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He is holding on to me. I am safe in Jesus And of all the passages in the scripture, as strange as it may seem, it's this one in Genesis 15 that is most convincing to me. In spite of the fact that the whole New Testament is so clear, I think it's Genesis 15 that is most convincing. Because here's what happened. After Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, God says, Abraham says, how how am I going to understand all this and whatever? And God says, look, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a bunch of animals and cut them in half. And I want you to lay them on either sides of the trough. Some of you have heard me explain this before, but this is new for some. So hang in there. The rest of you get reinforcement, okay? Abraham knew what God was doing. What was about to happen was a common way of binding a very solemn contract between kings and rulers in Abraham's day. What they would do is they would cut these animals in half and lay them on the sloping sides with a trough of like a shallow ditch in the middle and the blood of the animals would run in and fill this ditch. And then both of the kings would walk through, or both of the leaders would walk through that ditch, and the blood would splash up around the hem of their coats, their garments, and their sandals. And that blood stain would be on the bottom of their robes for a long time to come. Because they didn't have a closet full of clothes like we do. And that would remind them that we made a commitment to each other, and if we break that, may God cut us in half like these animals and slaughter us. We're going to keep this promise. 
So Abraham did what God asked him to do. He cut these animals in half. He made, this, he made the, the sacrifice and the trough. And just as Abraham was getting ready to, to, to walk through there with God, God caused the deep sleep to fall on him, and he went into a trance-like state. And here's what's real interesting. Abram never got to walk through the ditch. Only God walked through the ditch. Do you know what that was signifying? God says, I'm entering into a covenant with you, and I alone am responsible to keep it. Abram, you're a man, you're weak, you're of flesh. I'm not putting this on your shoulders. Okay? You've trusted me. You've put your faith in me. I will keep this covenant alone by myself. And you can rest in me. When Abram woke up from that trance and saw that thing happen, God says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to be circumcised, and I want all the males in your household to be circumcised. And when you've been circumcised, it will be an outward sign of the inner covenant that we have made. That's not like anything we do. When did Abraham get justified? When he got circumcised? No, when he believed God. When did Abraham get, get justified? When they made the covenant and God walked? No, when he believed God. At that moment in time, Abraham was a, a saved man. And he had done nothing except trust God. And that's when you and I become saved people, when we trust God. But now, God enters this covenant with him, this commitment, and that's what God does with us. He enters a covenant, he enters a commitment. He says, you trust me, and I will keep you. You trust me, and I will stand with you. I will uphold this covenant in, our, in your life. And I will give you a sign, a seal. And that seal will be, I'm going to put my spirit in you. Ephesians chapter 1 says, God has given us the Holy Spirit as an earnest, a down payment, a seal of our inheritance. By bringing the spirit into our lives, God proves, I will fully redeem you. I'm going to put my spirit in you today, and one day in glory I will resurrect you, body, soul, and spirit, and fully possess and redeem you. And here's the proof. You have my spirit. This is the chapter where Abram and Sarai's names were changed. They had been Abram, great father, and Sarai all this time. And after this covenant, God says, no longer will your name be Abram and Sarai, but it's going to be Abraham and Sarah. Very interesting. You know why? Because those two names are spelled exactly the same. Except for one thing. In Hebrew, a little comma is added. That comma is a breathing mark. It's the only difference. Are you catching on? No longer will your name be Abram, it'll be Abraham. And no longer will it be Sarai, it'll be Sarah. The Ruach, the breath of God, came upon them. The Holy Spirit, seal of promise. And God poured his spirit on them and changed their name to reflect only his breath. And from that moment on, Abram, Abraham 
and Sarah walked in the obedience of that covenant. It's interesting to note that before this time, when God said, you're going to be a father of a father of a multitude, you know, a little bit of time went along and they still didn't have any kids. And I'm sure uh, that, that Sarai was saying to Abram and they were talking back and forth saying, man, God, God said he was going to give a kid from your body. But you know what? I went through menopause three decades ago, four decades ago. This is, I mean, this is not happening with me. So I tell you what, why don't you take my maid, <clears throat> Hagar, and have a baby by her, and, and that will fulfill the requirements. It'll be your body, our baby, and, and, and just exactly what God said will be done. And the scripture says, Abram listened to his wife, and they agreed together to do this thing. Now we read that and say, man, what's up with that? I mean, that's really strange stuff. Isn't that immoral? Well, it is to us, because we have the law of Moses, and we have all the rules and regulations and laws in our country, but in those days, that was the law. It was not wrong. Servants were owned by their masters. And if a woman owned a female slave, and that woman was barren and could not have children, and there were no heirs in the family, it was legally acceptable to give the slave to the husband for the purpose of having a child, and then when it came time for delivery, the slave would sit upon the knees of the wife, and the baby would be born between the wife's legs, and legally that child would belong to the husband and wife, and would be considered the legitimate heir. The problem is, anybody could make that happen. The fact that Abram was about 84 years old at this point didn't mean he wasn't capable of fathering a child. Bring in a 20-year-old and who knows what can happen. But Sarai definitely wasn't having any more kids. She wasn't having any kids. It was over for her. So God comes back to them at some point, and that all happened before the circumcision, before the covenant, before the promise. Afterwards, God comes back and says, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a baby. Abraham says, you know what, I've already got one kid, and I'm 100 years old, I'm 99, and one teenager in this family is enough. <laughs> imagine, imagine being 99 and having a teenager, okay? One of them's enough, and um, God says, "Oh no!" But Sarah's going to have a uh, Sarah's going to have a baby, and uh, tents don't have thick walls, you know. And Sarah hears this and she laughs, and God says, "Did Sarah laugh?" <laughs> "Oh no, my Lord, that wasn't me." "Oh yes, it was. I heard you. You mark my words, Sarah. This time next year, you are going to have a baby." Abraham looked at his body. He was, I'm 100 years old. I'm as good as dead. She's 90 years old. She's as good as dead. This is not. But he said, okay, God, we're going to take you at your word. And that time next year, Sarah, who was well beyond the years of childbirth, had a child. They named him Isaac. Do you see the significance of this, people? 
When we're in the flesh, we can do all kind of things, even things we think are for God. And that's exactly what Paul calls Ishmael in the book of Galatians, the child of the flesh. Because Abram could do that all by himself. But the work of God, the work that's done in the power of the Spirit, is a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. And after the covenant, and after the anointing of the Spirit, and after the seal of circumcision, Abraham Abraham is now anointed with the Spirit of God. I didn't say indwelt. We'll get into that theology later. But he's anointed with the Spirit of God. And in that anointing, in the power of the Spirit, he has a child that only God could bring. And friends, there's a lesson for us in the work of God. We can do God's work our way with our strength. And you know what? It's always going to turn out like Ishmael. It's always going to be a mess. But we have been given the Spirit as a promise, a down payment in our lives. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can accomplish things that only God can do if we trust him. And so Abraham becomes for us an example of faith. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. A picture of one who trusted God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And who throughout his life began to demonstrate the obedience of a faithful walk with God in Jesus Christ. He is a great example. And right in the middle of this early part of Romans, as Paul was explaining to us justification, Abraham is a perfect example of the life of a believer. And he is the perfect father for all the faithful. Not the law, not circumcision, not the Jews only, but faith. Abraham is the father of faith. And as the father of the faithful, he is our father as well. Our example, we belong to his race. Paul proves that in Romans 9, 10, and 11 in much greater detail. I hope this is encouraging to you this morning. I hope it helps you see how God has painted such clear pictures for us and given us the encouragement that trusting him alone is what he asked for. And he will do not only the saving, but the working and the accomplishment and the power of his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the great testimony of this man, Abraham. Thank you for the power of his life. Thank you for the demonstration of faith. And I just pray this morning that we would be like him, that we would trust you fully and follow you and allow your spirit to accomplish his work. Thank you that he comes up in this great discussion. It's not baptism. It's not church membership. It's not keeping the rules. Those are not the things that save us. They may flow out of our obedience to you, but it is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not our works, that saves us. And Abraham believed you and was credited as righteous before any ritual or any symbol or any law had ever come to be that we might understand it's not by our works, but by your grace. And thank you, Father, that you have undertaken to keep the covenant. 
we can rest in you. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is patting themselves on the back and saying, yeah, man, I got a free ticket, it doesn't matter. Please show them, please show them that they do not have hearts that exhibit transformation of new birth. Because when we're born again, we are new creatures. You change us. And if that's the attitude that anyone has, oh God, please open their eyes. They are in danger of eternity without you because whatever they've thought, it has not changed their life. You change us. You transform us. But you keep the covenant. And we are grateful. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.